Hello, this is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Brian Thompson in the studio in Rome. And co-presenting this edition in the run-up to the Food Systems Summit, I'm Kayla Carvalho, joining you via Zoom from Sao Paulo, Brazil. In this month's edition, we are hearing from EFAD's Associate Vice President, Donald Brown. He tells us about how EFAD is preparing for the UN's Food Systems Summit and updates on the COVID-19 crisis and the impact on farmers in developing countries. Also staying with the food systems theme in the program, we cross over to Peru for the final part of our series on women leaders in Afro-descendant communities in South America. This time we hear how they are protecting food systems from climate change. And then we go up to Florida for some interesting innovations in vertical farming on small-scale market garden plots. Then we find out how in order to fight gender imbalance, change needs to start at home. I'll be talking to Elena Lowe. And then we have a report from Linda Odiembo on how regional integration in East and Southern Africa is affecting farmers there. Staying with the integration theme, we have a report from Duncan Chando on South-South Triangular Cooperation. The next in our Rural Voices series from Michelle Porter and wrapping up the show, Kayla talks to our newest Recipes for Change chef, Shane Chartrand. Don't forget we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcasts at efat.org. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform and please rate us. This is Farms Food Future. The UN's Food Systems Summit is upcoming in September. And IFAD is UN anchor organization on the summit's Action Track 4. This focuses on advancing equitable livelihoods. It's designed to contribute to the elimination of poverty by promoting full and productive employment and decent work for all actors along the food value chain. It also aims to reduce risks for the world's poorest, enabling entrepreneurship and addressing the inequitable access to resources and distribution of value. Donald Brown is Associate Vice President at IFAD. I asked him what he hopes can be achieved. I suppose at the highest level, I see the Food System Summit as a real opportunity to work towards improving the SDGs. And I really want to see a new consensus on how we can transform food systems to accelerate that progress, particularly around the goals one and two. But, you know, the other thing that I think is really important in the Food System Summit is that it's very solutions oriented. And, and I like that. And it's inclusion of rural people in those discussions. So I'm hoping that we can come to an agreement on some concrete actions that we can all take on the food system, you know, both at national, local, international level, but also with companies and individual producers. Uh, and obviously, you know, from an EFAB perspective, I'm really quite excited that these sort of solutions can complement and support our projects and the work we're doing on food systems uh, uh, across the portfolio. And it's also obviously an important uh, opportunity for EFAD to showcase some of our work and our knowledge and to help guide the discussion, particularly to ensure that small producers are 
at the center of this. And as part of that process, um, we're producing our flagship rural development report this year, actually on the same topic. So I hope that the rural development report from EFAD will be a, you know, a key contribution to providing insights that can inform the discussions uh, and ensure that the kind of rural development context for the food systems is based on evidence and clear policy recommendations. And obviously, um, and lastly, the Food Systems Summit was conceived in a pre-COVID world. And so the need for a, a much more inclusive, well-functioning and resilient food system is now even more important than it was when the Food Systems Summit was uh, conceived. Uh, and something that will be you know, more resilient to future shocks. So I think it's really important that the summit uh, factors in uh, the impact of COVID uh, and builds better for the future. As, as IFAD heads onwards and upwards from its latest fundraising round, IFAD 12, what for you is the focus of our work on the ground moving forward? So for IFAD 12, um, the focus must be to uh, deepen the impact and also increase the impact. Uh, you know, COVID has uh, put even more uh, rural people into poverty, into food insecurity. So we need to do even more uh, than before. And that must be a key part of IFAD 12, uh, as well as obviously um, helping uh, the rural people to uh, recover from the impact of COVID build stronger resilience uh, and, and, and rebuild their livelihoods. But I think, you know, the for EFAD 12, there's also a, a number of things. It's not just more of the same and a deeper and a wider impact. There are a number of opportunities which COVID uh, ha has brought forward. Um, one is in, uh, in the use of digital technologies. Um, and I think that really came through uh, in our COVID response, putting it simply, if we have much more uh, use of digital technologies, we can reach more poor rural farmers. We can improve the access they have to uh, markets, to financial services, to knowledge. And often the sort of the poorest rural farmers are ones least served by traditional forms of extension and technology. So I think that this is a really, really important aspect of EFAD 12 and beyond is for EFAD to play its part in a revolution on uh, on the use of digital technologies, particularly for small farmers. Um, clearly, climate change. I mean, this is the year of COP26, and EFAD has a really has really good experience and a really important offer to the world on uh, improving adaptation and resilience of small farmers. So, climate will be an, a really key issue, uh, a, a, and EFAD's contribution for EFAD 12. And maybe lastly, uh, as EFAD is doing more and more with the private sector, um, EFAD 12, I think, is the time when we will really cement the contribution of the private sector within the broader focus of EFAD's mission. That was Donald Brown. But coming up now, the final part of our mini-series on Afro-descendant communities in South America. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Kayla Carvalho, joining you via Zoom from Brazil, and also Brian Thompson in the studio in Rome. The Afro-Descendant Cultural Assets Foundation, Aqua, works with EFAD, developing and supporting projects in Latin America. 
Rosa Colchado is general coordinator of the Afro-Peruvian Museum of Zania and also a tourist counselor there. Rosa's part of a project called Safeguarding the Zania River Basin, Climate Change and Food Security, which aims to protect the natural and cultural heritage of the basin with its flora and fauna. I talked to Rosa about the work of the Afro-Peruvian Museum of Zana in protecting the basin from climate change, the importance of maintaining and valuing the traditions of the community, and some of the project's strategies to inform the population. The mission of the Afro-Peruvian Museum as a living institution of the community is to participate in everything related to the development of the community and to work towards highlighting not only our costumes, traditions and ancestral knowledge, which are very important for the knowledge of our history, but also to anticipate, according to international studies and local findings, the problems arising from the crisis of climate change and its destructive impacts. We must consider that in our basing, one of the main difficulties is not having enough information and communication with all those involved in this problem. In our specific case, the Sanya River Basin involves nine districts, five in the Labayek region on the coast and four in the Cajamarca region in the high Andes. This dispersion makes it difficult for the state to provide essential services. It also makes basing planning tasks more difficult. It is also important to note that the Sanya River is one of the principal rivers of the Peruvian Pacific Coast and is polluted. Therefore, based on the above, we defined it as an essential objective to safeguard the natural and cultural heritage of the basin with its flora and its fauna, the transformation to a clean, ecological river and the production of healthy and organic food. What are some of the project's main achievements so far? Through this project, we raise awareness and educate the population about deforestation and contamination of the basin, making the people aware that the river, the valley and the basin are vital and intrinsic parts of our lives and generations in all their biodiversity. This project aims to prevent the continued loss of the diversity of flora and fauna, forests, carob trees, medicinal plants, fruit trees and to prevent the continued loss of terrestrial and aquatic species and birds, many of which have already been lost. The reforestation of the riverbanks is another of our proposals to reduce or avoid erosion and the deepening of the riverbed thus preventing us from cultivating certain areas. To achieve all this, we have prepared eight educational modules. To achieve these educational modules, we have done a lot of research. We have taken national and international sources. We have also collected interviews from the older people to make a timeline that allows us to know what existed and what exists now and how we can recover it. Based on these modules, we have created virtual educational rooms aimed at young people, farmers, and families in general. In addition, we have produced eight radio podcasts, which we have broadcast 
32 times on the base's radio stations. This objective is to raise awareness of the latent dangers of climate change. Here we have dealt with all the issues in a simple, accessible and understandable way for the population. We have explained the history, geographical location, components, biodiversity that is being lost and the danger of further loss. We have also given talks in person, made excursions to the affected areas, such as the dry forests, and visit the basin in the middle and lower part of the valley. All these visits, of course, have been made, taking into account all the security measures required by the pandemic. And with all this information, we have produced a brochure on climate change currently being distributed to the general population. It is worth mentioning that we support Aqua and IFAD, which have been collaborating with the museum for many years to regulate the citizen initiatives. That was Rosa Colchado from Peru for part five of our mini-series, Aqua Women Leaders. Next up, we're turning farming on its head as we move from horizontal to vertical. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson in Rome and Kayla Carvalho joining us via Zoom from Sao Paulo. Colab Farms is an innovative operation in South Florida set up by Pamela Hutzinger-Alexander. She has three small plots on the outskirts of the town of Stewart, north of West Palm Beach, which take up just under four and a half hectares. Within the space, a little less than 1,500 square meters is under glass in greenhouses. And in that environment, she protects her crops from storms, pests, heat, and salty air. Selling directly from their farm shop to local customers, they supply a number of local restaurants with a wide variety of fresh food. And they're also about to set up a farm restaurant. One of their biggest innovations is vertical farming. I asked Pamela to tell us more. Um, it goes into, you know, trying to produce the, the most amount of food in the least amount of space. Um, vertical farming is, is brilliant and, it, and it, it's, it's answered a big question for a lot of people. You know, how, how can I grow more food in, say, for us, like 16,000 square feet? Um, and we incorporate a few different styles of vertical farming. There's a lot out there and I just, I love the innovation and I love seeing uh, new products coming out, new experiments and uh, people all over the world are, are experimenting with vertical farming and, and there's been some amazing, amazing results. Um, for us, we, we incorporate a tower system which um, it's individual towers. And so in one greenhouse span, we have say 90 towers and they each have a, a base at the bottom for the water reservoir. And they're all hooked up, so they, they all kind of share the water. And, um, and then you have kind of these, um, it's they almost like saucer pods that go up. And so some, might, some towers might have six or eight or 10 pods going up. And so in a, say a three foot square space, you might be growing 60 or 70 plants. Um, this system works really great. It, it recycles the water. So all the water that's going up, feeding the plants, all comes back down in the reservoir, gets, um, gets refiltered, regenerated with uh, nutrients, goes back up. So your water usage, um, you're saving about 80 to 90% of water that you would have used in a, in a drip or broadcast system um, in the ground. 
and um, it works wonderful for plants, all different types of greens, uh, Asian cabbages, herbs, um, different things, you know, kales and things like that. It's not so great for, you can't, I mean, you could, but it's not cost uh, efficient, you know, for root vegetables or tomatoes or peppers and things like that that are heavier. So then we try other systems. So we have uh, a frame system that uses gutters. And so just imagine, you know, 60 foot span of uh, gutter system that's being supported by these A frames that are uh, set up along the, the expanse. And so that can go up, you've got, you know, one A frame has say two, four, six, or five or six gutter systems or seven, depending on how we set it up. And those gutter systems were growing carrots and beets and radishes and uh, garlic and, you know, all sorts of things. You can grow pretty much anything in those. Um, that's a wonderful system. And then um, it's not vertical, but we're doing these uh, deep water lettuce rafts. Um, and that's a great way of reuse, reusing the water, but because they're in a raft system, you're, you're growing almost four times the lettuce per square foot that you would have in a row system, uh, just a regular planting in rows in the ground. Um, we don't have to utilize any type of artificial lighting um, because of being in Florida. So we're very lucky that way. Um, I know in you know more Northern states where the lighting is limited or say in an urban, a very urban situation where you're in the city, you know, being able to do a vertical system in a warehouse or in a building uh, is amazing. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty cool, the, the technology that's coming out these days. So how transferable do you think this technology, these practices are for farmers in developing countries? I believe that it's very transferable. Um, one of our goals and why we kind of consider our newest greenhouse range um, a bit experimental is we want to see how much food, quality food and nice variety of food that we can grow, say in a 16,000 square foot footprint in conditions that, um, that sometimes have a hard time with it. You know, for us growing 12 months out of the year, um, the, the summers are terrible. You know, it's hot and it's humid. We have lots of bugs. Um, and so, we're going to be experimenting this summer with different varieties. Um, you know, what heirlooms, what, you know, non-GMO seeds and stuff like that will work in our greenhouses. Um, trying to grow things that we normally wouldn't be able to grow in, in the summer in Florida. And by doing those types of experiments, that would allow us to either share this information, utilize this information, partner with people or whatever in developing countries that have similar um, climates as ours. Thanks to Pamela Hutzinger-Alexander and you can find out more about Colab Farms at www.colabfarms.com. If you want to hear more stories from the world of farms food future, go to www.efat.org forward slash podcasts. In episode 21, we heard from the Food System Summit's number two, Martin Frick. In episode 19, we heard about the mental health crisis in agriculture. And in episode 18, we saw how resilience building helps farmers cope better with COVID. Next month, more on vertical farming, but with an aquaculture angle. 
And next, we'll be talking about household methodologies. You're listening to Farms Food Future. When women have unequal access to resources in their own homes and are unable to participate in decision-making, that imbalance is reflected in their community and workplace as well. In order to fight gender imbalance, change needs to start at home. That's why household methodologies exist. These methodologies allow family members and couples to work together, reworking and rethinking their roles at home in order to achieve more equitable workloads and improve their relations. I talked to Elena Lowe, a facilitator who has been helping implement the GALS methodology for almost 10 years. She explained to us why GALS is different from other projects that also try to empower women and how it impacts individuals, couples, and families by changing their way of thinking. Uh, most development programs, uh, projects, uh, it's like they are in the periphery, you know? So people engage with the project, but they don't relate it directly with their lives. So the process of empowerment is very slow. And what I realized with girls, people feel so empowered to be able to share the tools with somebody else who influences their lives that they quickly organize themselves. You know, it's quite often in girls that a person will make a plan for 12 months and they manage to do everything in three months. Because then, and then that, you know, uh, makes them want more, dream more, believe more on them. For example, we had a young woman uh, who could not um, uh, write and read. And she was very disturbed that she had to put her finger in the ink to, to sign for the participation form. And six months later, when I went there, she was writing. And she came to me and she said, Helena, they called me Helena. They, Helena, now I don't need the link, uh, uh, the ink. I'm writing my name. For me, that is such an important, you know, I, I have been uh, promoting uh, literacy programs and literacy programs and people don't write and read. But this woman, this young woman, she was so disturbed that she could not write her name that she herself, she decided to find an adult education program that she enrolled and she learned how to sign her name. Hey, that was so powerful for me. How does GAO's methodology make sure that women's voices are heard? I find a lot of people say, oh, this is for couples because we're working with the household. And I always say, be careful because not every household has a husband and a wife. And even when there is a husband and a wife, the power is not the same. So when you ask for a joint vision of the household, it means that you are actually debilitating the person who is weaker in that relationship. While if you allow for both of them to have their vision, they will then find what is common and build their life based on the common not on the differences, but do you empower both at the same time. So that is another change and a learning for me. Now, when I facilitate girls immediately, I say, even if you bring a couple to the workshop, they should have their own vision because it's not always the same. And where the husband has more power, usually it's the man who has more power, they will end up working on the husband's vision. And this is not what we are looking for, you know. We actually want to, to change those power relationships, to transform those power relationships. So the, the, the drawing of individual vision made most women stronger because they didn't believe themselves very much. And when they had their own plan 
and most of the time their own plan, their own vision was higher, you know, was more visionary than their husbands. And they, they're realizing that, hey, I can do this. I can be a different person. Change at home won't happen if it's only women putting in their work. How does household methodologies affect men and what are some of the tools used? One of our tools is the gender balance tree. And that is something that I always ask people to work on it together with the vision journey because it brings the whole issue of the burden, you know, uh, in the household. Men become so surprised when they start understanding the amount of work their wives have to do for him to have the life that he has. And then they start also working differently. They start taking responsibility of household calls. So that change I can see across all the countries that I have worked with girls. I have been in Sierra Leone was my first one and I'm very grateful for that. But I have been to Guatemala. I'm working now with Timor, Timor Leste. Uh, Timor Leste. I'm working with Mozambique, two different programs in Mozambique. And I can see that one of the biggest um, gain for women is that the husband start believing and acting differently for their carrying um, responsibilities. They really um, uh, create a different, um, how can I say it, environment in the household. It makes women uh, much, much happier. And when the woman is happy, the family gets even better. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Elena Lowe, for talking to us. Coming up, we'll be talking about regional integration in East and Southern Africa. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson, in the studio in Rome and Kayla Carvalho joining us down the line from Sao Paulo in Brazil. Regional integration has a much broader aim than simple efforts to liberalize trade. It helps the flow of goods, services, capital, energy, people, customs and ideas. Although Africa has made efforts towards regional integration, like the recently adopted African Continental Free Trade Agreement, there's still a lot that needs to be done. Our reporter, Linda Odiambo, speaks to Sarah Bagobunu, IFAD's Regional Director for East and Southern Africa, as she provides highlights from an interview she did with the OPEC Fund on regional integration in Africa. Uh, regional integration has a long history in Africa and uh, with many positive returns. Uh, so far, we have had experiences with forming economic and monetary unions. We have also have experience in forming customs unions like the East African Community, the Southern African uh, Common Union, SACU. Um, and uh, we have also had experiences uh, sort of trying to form uh, economic uh, uh, commissions like the SADC and Commissars of this world. Uh, ECOWAS is also one to speak of. These different bodies have different levels of um, uh, integration. Some are looking at integrating um, around currencies. Uh, some are looking at integrating uh, trading regimes. Uh, some other ones are really looking at integrating and harmonizing uh, governance uh, of markets. So the different bodies and different economic commissions have had varying uh, and different degrees of success in their drive uh, to, to, to integrate. 
But today we are on the brink of basically a very revolutionary and important development with Africa Free Trade Continental Area that is going to unlock and provide opportunities and jobs for a population of 1.2 billion and could actually a market cover 2.5 trillion uh, gross domestic product. This is a huge market right across Africa. Uh, and by 2050, the African Union predicts that this will be one of the world's largest free trade areas uh, in the world. Going back to the article that you did, it seems that there are certain sectors in Africa that are benefiting more from regional integration than others. What can the agriculture sector learn from this? We know that by developing common markets and integrating and harmonizing conditions for trade, uh, especially cross-border trade, it could unlock and lift and include many smallholder communities, smallholder farmers into markets. Um, unfortunately, the harmonization process cross-border trade and for food trade is prohibited, uh, sometimes by phytosanitary measures, which are essential. Um, it's also prohibited because of uh, all the necessary licenses and certificates you need to order to cross borders. We also understand that because of this, there's so many delays for trading goods. And this is not really good for food and agriculture, which has very rapid um, loss uh, perspectives uh, because they are, they are perishable goods. And this, uh, this has really blocked uh, development of the agriculture and food sector, which is employer for most Africans. And once we get this right, then I think opportunities will flow in African free trade um, continental area presents a fantastic opportunity to include smallholder farmers at the center of these of these markets. And everything should be focused now on how we can harmonize uh, and support local and national and regional uh, uh, markets to develop and thrive. Thank you for that, Sarah. To conclude our conversation, briefly tell us about IFAD and OPEC funds work in Africa. Jointly, we've been trying to meet and bridge the infrastructure gap that exists. Uh, we know that the logistics index for Africa is one of the worst in the world, the lowest in the world, and mobility and connectivity is still underdeveloped. And OPEC and IFAD have been investing uh, to close these gaps and to build commercial infrastructure, both the software and the hardware to connect uh, markets right across uh, the continent. OPEC has been instrumental in financing infrastructure, not only for productivity and irrigation, but also roads, markets, uh, auction houses for livestock. All of this is critical in trying to bridge and support uh, and facilitate the free movement of agricultural goods in particular. And uh, with COVID, we have seen the emergence of green corridors, which are highlighted as essential sectors because food is an essential activity and uh, we saw and learned a lot uh, in the year and a half that we have been facing the pandemic, how by designating green uh, corridors as essential, and this has helped support the movement of food and ensuring that uh, hunger does not arrive. That was Sarah Bagobunu, IFAD's Regional Director for East and Southern Africa, speaking to our reporter Linda Odiambo in Nairobi. 
For the detailed article by Sarah, visit www.opecfundasoneword.org forward slash news. Coming up, we'll be staying in the region to look at South-South Triangular Corporation at work. This is Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson and Kayla Carvalho. Now it's time for a report by Duncan Chando on IFAD's work with the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, or AGRA, South-South Triangular Cooperation, and in particular, dry-cut technology. For a long time, Africa's agricultural sector has been characterized by small farms, limited opportunity for innovation and low yields. Because of climate change, food insecurity is a growing challenge, especially in the Sahel, the Great Lakes region, and the Horn of Africa. So with the aim of addressing these specific challenges of uh, food insecurity and other and innovation aspects, IFAD is collaborating with AGRA under the project Leveraging South-South and Triangular Cooperation to share rural development solution for private sector engagement. Today we are hosting Mr. Serafin Niosenga, the promoter of dry cut technology based in Kigali, Rwanda. What is dry cut? And in that connection, also, what is the cost benefit for small-scale farmers using the dry cut technology? Dry cut technology is a low-cost technology uh, which allows smallholder farmers to know if their grains or agricultural products are well dried. So the dry card was invented by the University of California, Davis, while the other uh, moisture meter machine sells for $500, the dry card can be available for only $1 to smallholder farmer. How sustainable is the dry card technology in terms of small-scale farming in Africa? The dry card technology is a very uh, an easy to use technology to smallholder farmers because it uses the language of color. It's just the color change, and which makes it easy for even the illiterate farmers to use. And unlike other electronic machines that are in the market, the dry card does not need a, is a reusable. It can be used for three years. The dry card does not need batteries to, to work, and uh, does not calibration which really makes it sustainable in the smallholder setting that we know in our countries. What about the technical support the farmers need to use the dry card? The farmer just need, need a jar to collect the sample of the maize, a hermetic jar where you put your, your sample of grains and you put in the dry card. When the dry card color, you have to wait 30 minutes. When the color change to blue or purple, it means that your grains are at the, rest, at the right moisture to be stored, and when the, the dry card turns into pink, it means that your grains are really uh, wet. Also just make us understand that how transferable is this particular technology? The dry card can be used for to test uh, the dryness of any agricultural commodity. We started with the maize because of the problem of aflatoxin, mycotoxin contamination, but the dry card can be used for any agricultural commodities, be it grains, uh, fruits, vegetables, or which are dried. We were able to uh, distribute more than 20,000 dry cards so far in our two years of operation. We shipped some 5,000 dry cards in Ethiopia and Sierra Leone. Uh, we are through the Sasakawa Africa Association, and uh, we awarded some recognition from the African Union and other organizations. Have you received any support from the government of Rwanda? Government of, of have been so supportive because they understood uh, the importance of dry card to solve the problem of post-harvest. 
So the Ministry of Agriculture, through Rwanda Agricultural Board, did the testing and the validation of uh, the dry cars. And also the Rwanda Standard Board did the, the testing and the validation of the dry cars. We are privileged to have uh, the UN World Food Program being the early adopter of the dry cars. The African Union, through the, uh, the Pan-African uh, Aflatoxin Control Framework, gave us a good price, a price of really recognizing that really dry card is a, a, an agent of change. That was Duncan Chando talking to Agro Seraphin Niasenga. Coming up, we have Rural Voices. This is Farms Food Future. Over the next couple of episodes, we'll be sharing some rural voices. When it comes to food systems, it's really important that we listen to the people on the front line of agriculture, the small-scale farmers and producers themselves. We'll be hearing directly from them, from their land, about the concerns and worries they have on a day-to-day -day basis and what IFAD and the world can do to help them improve their livelihoods. Today, we'll be hearing from three different farmers and producers from around the world. We'll be going to Pakistan and Brazil, but let's start with Mamadou Diara from Mali. My name is Mamadou Diara. I'm 37 years old. I'm a market gardener and breeder. My daily life, in the morning, I bring the animals to the pasture and I return to the garden. Around one, I give the animals water and go back to the garden again. I rest a little and afterwards I work until the early hours of the evening. The biggest challenge in producing nutritious food is the problem of rain, soil and seeds. Climate change has affected us through the scarcity of rains. The trees are dried out. COVID-19 also affected us because we have the problem of access to markets. We exported our products, but with COVID-19 everything is stopped. What would make it easier for us is to find improved seeds and a way to get information about the rain. To fight climate change, we need improved seeds and the means to quickly inform ourselves about the rain. Other technological tools that would make my life easier are the cart and seed drill. I ask world leaders to support producers in rural areas so that they can benefit from their productions. My hope for the future, for me and my family, is agriculture and reforestation. Back to our rural voices again. This time, we're heading to Pakistan and farmer Shabana Bibi. My name is Shabana Bibi. I am 35 years old. I work at farms, harvesting wheat and picking cotton. We are livestock and do sewing and stitching. Previously, weather was manageable, but in recent years, it is only hot weather. Everything is difficult, but we have no other choice than hard work to raise children. As we work under sun, we get sick, and during winters and while cotton picking, we get flu and cough. We need financial assistance schemes like loans so we could afford wheat grains. We cannot afford diverse food for our children due to financial constraints. Increasing food prices are widely felt. For example, potato has increased from 40 rupees to 80 rupees per kilogram. The project has helped us very much. I have received goats and also wheat grains from food banks. I have sold buck and have bought a cow. Now I sell milk as well. I want to request world leaders to control the price of 
food items and to please eliminate poverty. I can foresee a better future only if poverty is eliminated. And for our third and final rural voice for this episode, let's head to Brazil and Denise Cardoso. I am president of Copper Cook, a cooperative of family farmers. The main activity of our cooperative is the extraction of umbu and other native fruits. Then we process these fruits and transform them into jams, jellies, juices and pulps. A major challenge is the marketing of family farming products to make possible for families to generate income from umbu and other native fruits. I believe that it is still necessary to invest in agricultural technologies for increasing family farming production. We need technology, we need development for the cooperatives, for the family farmers' organization. We have observed more prolonged droughts and more scarce rains. This makes it very difficult for farmers to have a more efficient production. I, Denise, would like to say to world leaders that it's very important to invest in family farming to feed families because we produce good, beautiful and fair food. That we will have a healthy environment, access to healthy food for everyone in a fair way, quality water for families, dignity for all the families. Thank you to Michelle Porter for those three reports on Rural Voices, and we'll have more in our next podcast. Coming up, we head over to Canada to speak to Chef Shane Chartrand. This is Farms Food Future. Welcome to our new Recipes for Change, Chef Shane Chartrand. Shane grew up in rural Canada, between Calgary and Edmonton. He's been cooking since he was 16 and graduated from the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. He's been working in the culinary world ever since, honing his craft at some of Edmonton's best restaurants. He also wrote a book, Tawau Progressive Indigenous Cuisine, which contains recipes that trace his culinary and personal journey. I asked Shane how his indigenous background impacted his career as a chef and how he hopes to contribute to recipes for change. It didn't impact my, um, my career as a chef till later on. When I was a kid, I did not like farming. I did not like cutting heads off chickens. I didn't, like, I mean, I'd rather be with my friends in the city. And then after I started going from restaurant to restaurant, I was probably in my, like, mid-20s when my farming background became something. Because being an Indigenous person, when, when I realized a lot of people don't farm, a lot of people don't hunt, a lot of people don't garden, I was mortified. I'm like, but why though? That's just what you're supposed to do. So when I worked for um, a big chain restaurant and they're using all these vegetables, I'm like, this is cool. Where are they getting tomatillo? I wonder where they're getting this from. And of course, it's not from here. And I, and I was naive and too young to know. And then the more ingredients I'm getting, the more they're not from Canada at all. So I was confused. So then I thought back to the days of farming and I thought back to the days of people don't know anything about it. There's a lot of chefs that know nothing about farming, gardening, fishing, hunting. But that's when that's when in my in my mid 20s is where where my farming world changed my culinary world just because as a kid I didn't realize that all this stuff is imported, right? Instead of just from Canada. We got a lot of products here. We had a lot of families that sell great jams, jellies. Um, we got mushrooms on the West Coast. There are a lot here. 
Is it a bit expensive? Yeah. Um, I'm not saying get everything from here. That's not reality. Unless you're going to charge, you know, your minimum, your minimum plate might be $25 being your, you know, your most expensive could be 68. That's an expensive restaurant. Right. And then you're eating, you're eating food. That is a lot of people wouldn't even know the difference, but yeah, that's kind of how it works for me. What does progressive indigenous cuisine mean to you? Progressive um, indigenous cuisine just means ever changing. You know, there's not just one style of indigenous food. It comes from this land. It comes from everywhere. And um, people would, you know, people just think indigenous food is bannock and Indian tacos. It's, it's crazy because like there's so much more to our world. Um, if you get really, really deep and like, like, I'm not sure if you read the book at all, but there's things like soap berries. There's things like ling lingonberries. Um, I'm a huge berries guy. So there's quite a, quite a bit of that in there. Um, you know, wild game and stuff like that too. I think I got oxtail in there. Pretty sure I've got turkey neck soup, you know, all kinds of cool things. So that book is not like comes from all these elders that came together and gave me all the recipes. That's not the case. They're all my recipes. I had somebody help me test them. I had somebody say, help me say, no, I, you're going a little too far off track, but it's not just indigenous food though. It's my food from my family, from my life, from my, from when I was a kid growing up making uh, my own recipes. So progressive, ever-changing. How important for you is the link between the growers and the kitchen? I think the idea is to make sure that we're ethical on what we're buying and what we're choosing. Getting things cheap is not a good thing. It's a good thing depending on what you buy. So let's say, let's say for instance, we own a restaurant, right? We buy the cheap stuff for our toilet paper, napkins, all that kind of stuff, because that's the stuff where people really get ripped off. Um, but when it comes to the food, I would definitely make sure that the food that when you walk into my refrigerator, it's clean, it's organized, um, it smells good. And you look around and you just want to get you want to dive in and see what's in there. Why have you decided to join the Recipes for Change community of chefs here at EFAD? Um, because it sounds exciting and I get to meet people that are um, from other places. And that's that interests me quite a bit because I can't travel obviously. So at least I get to meet people that are unique and different and not to mention, at least we get to talk about food and let's be honest, everyone likes talking about food. Everybody likes hearing these things. I just think that talking about food for change makes sense. And, uh, it's, it's actually really, really exciting. What are your expectations as a new recipes for change chef? I think my expectations is literally to be able to, um, share my indigenous background, share my indigenous world, share my non-indigenous world, meaning just me, myself, and things I've done in my life. Um, the people I've met from Gordon Ramsay to Alicia Keys to all these actors that I've cooked for. You know, I've done a lot of crazy things from TV shows. I just wrote a cookbook uh, a couple of years back, and it's still selling out the door. Um, and this is just something else that can... At least this is the this is the thing I can be part of that makes me smile and you know that's why that's why this is nice to be part of. And I get to listen to other people's too. Thank you, Shane. 
You can find out more about Recipes for Change and see more of Shane's future collaborations with us at www.ifad.org forward slash recipes for change. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Farms Food's Future on Food Systems. Thanks to our producer Francesco Manetti, our reporters Michelle Porter and everyone else who's worked on this programme. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts. As we head towards the main event, the Food Systems Summit in September, we'll also have more on the big issues that are being discussed in our next two editions of this podcast. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and issues discussed and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with me or Brian at podcast at efat.org and send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform and please rate us. We'll be back at the end of August with more news fresh from the farm with news on vertical agriculture, aquaculture and young farmers in Monzevic. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson. And from me, Kayla Carvalho and the team here at EFAD. Thanks for listening. 